I just want to add my voice to what Pastor Wayne has already mentioned with those seminars coming up next week. You don't need to prepare for anything next week. You just need to show up at 6 o'clock. It will be an introduction, an overview to the course, and then we'll go for five weeks and go halfway through Polly Little's book, and then we'll take it up again in March, February, March, and do the last five. So I'd encourage you to come. It's a great opportunity to build sort of a, a framework, a theological framework that really um, allows us to approach God's Word with, a, with, a, uh, with a, a foundation to build on. And I think that this would be a great opportunity. Oftentimes I find that, that we have this theological framework that we've picked up along the way, a patchwork pieces together. This will give us kind of that unified, cohesive approach to the Bible that you'll find very helpful in the days to come. Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 11. At the end of John chapter 10, you'll remember that Jesus and his disciples have retreated to the other side of the Jordan River. They've escaped the Jewish opposition that was becoming increasingly hostile in the city of Jerusalem. They received news that his friend Lazarus was sick. And upon hearing the news, Jesus answered, Notice verse 4, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Jesus then delays his departure for four days, or for two days, before crossing the Jordan on his return trip to Bethany, Lazarus's hometown. And when he arrives, he discovers that Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. He consoles Lazarus' sisters, Martha first, and then Mary. And I'd like us to pick up the story in verse 33 of John chapter 11. I'd like to invite you, if you're able, to please stand with me for the reading from God's Word, beginning at John chapter 11 and verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, 
you will see the glory of God. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it, so they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come, who, had, who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, your word informs us that all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man, woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. These Bibles that we hold in our hands are reliable copies of the original manuscripts, and so we are without excuse. We have access to the infallible, inerrant, supernaturally preserved, authoritative and sufficient word of God. Thank you for these opportunities we have to study this revelation of your person, your plans, and your purposes. Specifically for the opportunity we have this morning to consider your word to us through the Apostle John's biographical account of the life and ministry of Jesus. These are not fictional stories, but descriptions of actual events. Use this report of Lazarus's resurrection from the dead to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness, so that we can continue to work out our salvation as you work in us. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At times like this, death seems so final. I'm wondering how many of us had at some point in our lives, stood in the midst of a gathering around a freshly dug grave. You may have even heard the one who was officiating say something like this. We commend to Almighty God our brother Lazarus. And we commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And at times like that, death 
seems so final. Now imagine returning to that site four days later. Try to put yourself in Martha and Mary's shoes, or sandals, I should say, the disciples of Jesus. All those many Jews who'd come out from the city of Jerusalem to console Lazarus' sisters, they're all there. Can you identify with them in their time of loss? Notice verse 35. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. This sickness was not to end in death, but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. The quotation marks around that point one are not a typo. It's actually point one is a direct quote taken from John chapter 11, verse 4. Remember, Jesus made that claim when he first learned of Lazarus' death. And yet... Jesus came to the tomb where Lazarus had been laid because his sickness did end in death. And as he approached the tomb where Lazarus had been laid, Jesus wept. And once again, he was deeply moved within. But his emotional response was interpreted differently. You know, there are three occasions in the New Testament where it is reported that Jesus wept. Here in John chapter 11, in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. And then again, in the Garden of Gethsemane, according to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. Here in John chapter 11, the Jews saw his tears and agitation as a display of his love for Lazarus. But some of them, skeptics in the crowd, maybe the suspicious, maybe just natural-born critics. They wondered if he truly loved Lazarus. How could he not have prevented his friend's death? After all, he created brand new eyes for a man who had been born blind, John chapter 9. The Apostle Paul later admits that Jesus had done many other signs in John chapter 20, verse 30. In fact, so many signs that John closes the gospel of John with these words. And there are also many other signs which Jesus did, which if, 
If they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So if Jesus was capable, why didn't he? Why did he not act? Maybe there were tears of frustration because of his inability to prevent Lazarus' death. Now, you and I have the advantage of knowing the end of the story. But there may be a lesson here for us nonetheless. Emotional responses like motives, are difficult for us to interpret. You and I, we don't have the ability to see what's going on in a person's mind and heart. So when it comes to interpreting emotional responses, we need to proceed with caution. Jesus' expression of emotion was interpreted differently by those in the crowd. I should also mention that this was not Jesus' first encounter with death. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Beginning at verse 11. Soon afterwards, he, that's in Luke chapter 7, verse 11, and the he is Jesus, went to a city called Nain. And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and he touched the coffin, And the bearers came to a halt, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up, began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Flip over just one chapter to Luke chapter 8. Look at verse 41. We're introduced to a man named Jairus. And he was an official of the synagogue. He fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him to come to his house. You see, not only was he an official of the synagogue, but he was a dad with a 12-year-old daughter who was laying at home on her, on her deathbed. Look down at verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But when Jesus heard this, he answered him, Do not be afraid any longer. Only believe, and she will be made well. When he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the girl's father and mother. Now they were all weeping and lamenting for her. But he said, stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. They began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. 
He, however, took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately and gave orders for something to be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he instructed them to tell no one what had happened. Do you notice anything different about these two encounters with death? Something unique that's different than Jesus' encounter with Lazarus. That sets Lazarus apart as being unique. Four days, right? Four days in the tomb. These resurrections in Luke's account, they could have easily been dismissed. Oh, she was just comatose. He was just asleep. They lost consciousness. They just appeared to be dead. But look at verse 39 back in John chapter 11. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. The second thing that we discover in this episode is that Jesus' command was initially resisted. Jesus was not requesting or suggesting that the stone be removed. It's an imperative, a command. Move that stone. Open the grave. In our context, it would be, start digging. Martha objected on the basis of the smell coming from Lazarus's decomposing body. After all, four days in Palestine's hot, human, humid environment, the Jews did absolutely nothing to delay the decomposition of the body. It was wrapped in a linen cloth, first anointed with perfume, and then wrapped in cloth along with some spices. The perfume and spices would act like an air freshener or maybe some Febreze in order to mask the the odor. The King James Version reads, By this time he stinketh. The New Living Translation The smell will be terrible. Can you imagine? Ever left the garbage too long in the garage, gone on holidays and come back? Doesn't take long. Jesus came to the tomb where Lazarus had been laid because his sickness had ended in death. And he came to the tomb because Lazarus' sickness was not to end in death, but to the glory of God. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. What is the glory of God? What is it? It's obviously visible. Wayne Grudem, in his book on systematic theology, provides the following definition. God's glory is the created brightness that surrounds God's revelation of himself. In Psalm 104, 
verses 1 and 2, the psalmist declares, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a cloak. Remember the shepherd's experience at Jesus' birth announcement? In Luke chapter 2, verse 9, the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone about them, and they were terrified. But here in John chapter 11, there's no bright lights. No mention of anything that shone. However, those present were about to be enlightened by an encounter with the greatness of God. That's how I'd like us to think about this glory of God. It's an encounter with a self-disclosure or self-revelation of the greatness of God. An encounter with a self-disclosure or self-revelation with the greatness of God. Three things preceded this visible encounter with the glory of God. Jesus prayed. He cried out. And then Lazarus appears. He prayed for the benefit of others. He cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth and was set free. Look at verse 41 and 42. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus already knew what the Father was planning to do back in verse 4. Lazarus' sickness would not end in death. He looked up to heaven, and his public expression of thanksgiving to the Father was for the benefit of others, so that they would believe that Jesus had been sent by the Father. This past week, Cynthia and I stopped at London's Costco. It was around noon hour, and I find it really hard to resist that $1.50 hot dog and soft drink. Cynthia was in line getting the food and I was, because it was packed, I was already seated holding the seat, right? And beside me, an older couple came and sat down and they began to unwrap their foiled dogs, set them down and paused. This older gentleman reached over and took his wife's hand. They bowed their head and they prayed. I suppose it was meant to be a private moment, but it was done in public, and my heart was warmed. D.A. Carson reminds us of the uniqueness attached to our pastoral prayers that we've started to make a part of our corporate worship times. Public prayers, though like private prayers address God, must be crafted with the public in mind as well. Jesus 
offered a public prayer that was crafted for the benefit of the onlookers. Following his prayer, Jesus cried out, Lazarus, come out! Come forth! One Puritan writer noted, in fact, he wrote, had Jesus not named Lazarus, he would have emptied the cemetery. I can't imagine how I would have responded with what happened next. A body still wrapped in grave clothes appears at the mouth of the cave. The garment would have been, it's three times the length of the body. Goes, they lay the body on this, wrap it, and then fold it back. They tie cloths around the head, around the middle, the arms, and at the ankles. That's what they saw standing at the mouth of that cave. I'm sure an involuntary, reflexive gasp just kind of rippled through the crowd as people caught a glimpse of this body appearing at the mouth of the cave. All except Jesus, of course. He broke the sun's silence by instructing someone who I can only guess was taking a step back to step forward, unbind him, and let him go. Can you imagine the famous words of Paul Harvey, and now we know the rest of the story. Lazarus' death was not the end but the means of displaying the glory of God. Do you see it? The glory of God can be seen by those who believe. In creation, look around. Psalm 19 verse 1 reads, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. When the Old Testament prophet Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne, angelic beings who were attending to him were calling out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Then listen to Romans chapter 1 verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen. So that we are without excuse. The world in which you and I live and move and so often take for granted are like display windows of the stores downtown. They display the glory of God. Then, of course, the glory of God can be seen in Jesus. The Apostle John, 
writing in his very first chapter, opening, the opening to this account of the life and ministry of Jesus, writes in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And remember his first miracle took place at a wedding in the Cana of Galilee. He turned water into wine, the best wine. Verse 2, verse, chapter 2, verse 11 reads, this, beginning, this is the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. You may want to jot Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 down as well. It's not on your outline. And he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature. Jesus. We see the glory of God. The glory of God can also be seen in the, in the lives of genuine believers, faithful followers of Jesus. And note, please, that I didn't say perfect. I said genuine and faithful followers. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord, the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. He predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us, in the beloved. As we catch glimpses of the glory of God, it transforms us from the inside out. Little by little, the Spirit of God that indwells every genuine believer oversees and enables the renovation work. The way we act and react, our words and our deeds. They become like windows displaying the glory of God. These glimpses of the glory of God in creation, in Jesus, in the lives of genuine believers, it calls for a response. And folks, a glimpse is all we can handle. In that passage from Isaiah we looked at earlier where the Old Testament prophet Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne. Listen how he describes his reaction in his own words, how this encounter impacted him. Verse 5, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King the Lord Almighty. He was immediately and profoundly distressed. Again, from the pen of the Apostle John, who wrote this gospel, near the end of his life, he's been exiled on the 
Isle of Patmos because of his faith in Jesus. He has this vision in which he sees the Lord, and he reported it in Revelation chapter 1. Verse 17, he writes, When I saw him, I fell on my face as though I were dead. Anything more than a glimpse of the glory of the Lord will be overwhelming. We can't handle the glory of God. But a glimpse, a glimpse calls for a response. How will you respond to displays of the glory of God? Let me give you three possible responses. In John's God-inspired report of Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, we catch a glimpse, you and I catch a glimpse of the glory of God. Just as Jesus had claimed we would when he first learned of Lazarus' sickness, back in verse 4. This sickness is not to end in death, but is for the glory of God. So Lazarus' resurrection became an undeniable self-disclosure of God's greatness, a display of the glory of God providing additional evidence that Jesus was who he claimed to be, did what the scriptures say he did, and will do what he promised he will do. And he's capable of doing what he promised he will do. And yet, notice verse 45 and 46. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw that he, what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Many believed, but still, there were some who chose to side with Jesus' opposition. What's that tell us? Displays of the glory of God are no guarantee. Each one must decide for themselves. Believe in Jesus. Believe in him. This is Apostle John's purpose or reason for writing yet another account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already been written long ago. But John writes, for this reason, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that, purpose statement, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Believing in Jesus Christ means that we admit that we're sinners. We are what the Bible tells us we are, sinful people. And we repent, wanting nothing to do with sin. We thank Jesus for dying to pay the price for our sin. And then on the basis of Jesus' accomplishment, we ask God for forgiveness and for help to live a life 
that will please him. Believe in Jesus. Secondly, hope in heaven. Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus gives us hope when facing death. Our own death, the death of a loved one. Folks, death is both inevitable and unavoidable. To live is to die. According to the scriptures, death is our last great enemy. And yet, this glimpse of the glory of God displayed Jesus' power over death. The Apostle Paul, in his first letter to believers living in the city of Thessalonica, wrote, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, in other words, physically dead, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope, hope in heaven. Believe in Jesus, hope in heaven, and thirdly, reflect God's glory. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 to 16, puts it this way. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Our good works can be a reflection of the glory of God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Reflections. The glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whether then you eat, drink, or whatever else you do, do all to the glory of God. Reflect his glory. As believers who are indwelt by the Spirit of God, we can become a reflector of the glory of God. Respond to his displays of the glory of God by believing in Jesus, by hoping in heaven, and by reflecting God's glory in the way we act and react in our words, and in our deeds. Let's pray. Father, thank you for allowing us to catch just a glimpse of the glory of God in this episode of Jesus' life. May it transform us from the inside out so that we can truly sing, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, shine, shine. Let it shine. Everywhere I go, I'm going to let it shine. Out there in the dark, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, shine, shine.
let it shine. Help us, Father, not only to respond appropriately, but to become reflectors of your glory so that others might have an opportunity to catch glimpses of the glory of God through us, both individually and collectively. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.